Sometimes when you guys ask me questions the week before, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's one. Yeah, that's straightforward. That's pretty easy. Uh, this week, I really had to scratch my heads a little bit. Um, and, uh, head. I've only got one of those. Uh, but it, it, I think I, it just trying to express these answers in a, in a, I guess, a punchy way that is helpful. I, I don't know if I've pulled it off quite yet, but you'll tell me in a moment. But there are a lot of questions that are related to, um, to the big questions about why did Jesus die and uh, how that all works in, the, in, in terms of our forgiveness and various things like that. But it does kick off. The first one was a sort of a, a specific thing about the whole thing with Egypt. What would happen at the plague of the firstborn son if a Jew married an Egyptian? Well, anyone within the household of an Israelite would be saved if the Israelite followed God's instructions about the Passover. So regardless of, I think this is right, so regardless of married to other nationalities, the protection was by the Israelite following the instructions so that they could be saved from the angel of death's attack upon the firstborn son. So basically that means that slaves and servants from Egypt who lived with the Israelites would be spared if the Israelites followed the instructions for the house. So there's a whole thing about the household which is very significant then. But if an Israelite man lived with an Egyptian woman and they did not follow the instructions of the Lord, if they didn't step out in faith in that sense and believe him, then the angel of death would not pass over the house and therefore the firstborn son would be killed. Question two. If a person doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, then are they really a Christian? Well, I think the reason this question was asked was because I started last week saying that Christians are divided about the meaning of the cross. And uh, in particular, I said that some Christians don't even believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. So this question sort of comes in and says, how does that work? Are they a Christian or are they not? Well, when I started off last week talking about Christians in that sense, I'm talking about basically people whose claim to follow Christ, even if they perhaps got some things totally wrong. And one of those things you can get totally wrong and completely miss the point on is whether or not Jesus bodily rose from the dead, whether he physically rose. Because if a person doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then they're believing in a different Jesus. And that Jesus that they're believing in cannot actually save them. See, if they believe that Jesus is still physically dead, that if you were able to dig around somewhere in Palestine and and find his DNA in the ground there, then they actually would be believing in a different Jesus, not the Jesus who really exists, because Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. Jesus is seated at the Father's side, and he continues to serve there for us. And it's only by believing in the true Jesus that a person can be saved. So in that sense, someone might call themselves a Christian, but if they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then they are still in their sins. Question three. Why couldn't God just forgive us without needing a sacrifice? Ever thought about this one? Why couldn't he say, yeah, don't worry about it, it's fine? Well, for starters, the Bible is clear that God the Father had to sacrifice his son in order to forgive our sins and reconcile us to him. So just by starting there, the Bible says it had to happen. But why? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? Well, God created the universe in an ordered way, and he created it with a system of justice. And this is part of its beauty. You see, there's right and there's wrong, and there are consequences for disobedience. And 
and there are rewards for faithfulness. And the universe is like this because God is like this. He's full of justice and full of truth. So when a person sins against God, they have broken a law that's part of the way that the universe runs. It's a good law, though, a law that that gives order to our world. So, So to live within this good world that God's created, justice needs to be served and punishments need to be carried out. And we saw that whole system when we had a look at the book of Leviticus. And in that, there's all these sort of stories about how you need to kill things to make sacrifices and make atonement and all that stuff. And basically, the priests needed to kill the blood of an animal, and because of that blood, they would then have the sin dealt with. That's how the universe works, and that's because it's how God works and how God is. So for that reason, blood needs to be shed to bring redemption from our sins. And so that's why Jesus said in, at, at the first Lord's Supper, he said, For this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And Colossians 2 says, You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. Which leads us to the next question. If we can just forgive someone without cost, if we can do that, why can't God? Well, to turn the question around a bit, I think we can see that God actually can't forgive someone without a cost. I think I've already established that, right? That cost, of course, was the cost of the life of his precious son, Jesus, in our place, condemned at the cross. And so... With that in mind, the question sort of assumes that we can forgive someone without cost, but I reckon we actually can't forgive someone without cost. Sometimes there'll be a visible cost. For example, if someone borrows my favourite ukulele and puts a big scratch and a hole in it, uh, and they say, sorry, Jody, for putting a big hole in your ukulele, and I say, I forgive you, then that's actually going to come at a cost. I'm going to have to go and pay a luthier to go and fix it. But what if you've bullied me or abused me or hurt me in some sort of way? And if you then say to me, sorry, Jody, will you forgive me? Then if I say, I forgive you, is there any cost in that? I think there is. I think that there's a cost in that. You can't say sorry without also recognising that you've got to stop having anger towards that person. You've actually got to be reconciled when you say sorry. That, that anger, therefore, that you had for that person has to be absorbed in some way within yourself. That's the cost. You've got to give that anger up. And anything else that they've robbed from you in their abuse, their debt, that debt is now cancelled when you say, I forgive you. So when someone says that you can forgive without cost, I'm not actually sure they've understood the impact of saying, I forgive you. What about question five? Can we forgive someone who hasn't apologised? Well, yes and no. See, as followers of Jesus, we're called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. That's what Jesus said. And when we understand that the cost of the forgiveness 
that's given to us by Jesus is so great, then we should be willing to forgive anyone, no matter how hard it is. But I think that in order for there to be forgiveness, I think there also needs to be reconciliation. So one person says, I'm sorry, and the other person says, I forgive you, and then at that point they're at peace with each other. There's a reconciliation that's happened. But I'm not so sure we can fully say, I forgive you, to someone who hasn't said sorry. So I think we can say, I love you, and I wish to forgive you when you're genuinely sorry. And I think we all need to have that same love for others and a deep desire to truly forgive those who've harmed us. But I'm just not so sure we can actually say, I forgive you, if a person hasn't said sorry. And I think that's modelled in the way that God deals with us. We need to repent in order to be forgiven. But having said that, it's worth noting that Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So it's quite possible that it's maybe not as neat and tidy as I've put it to you today. But can you understand a whole lot of the issues there? That there's got to be a connection, I think, between repentance and forgiveness. And within all of that, there's the whole thought of of reconciliation that needs to happen there. Because when a person says, I forgive you, they actually need to say, I'm not going to harbour a grudge any further. Two to come. Question six, how can a Christian be called righteous when they continue to sin? Well, that's the miracle of grace. You see, uh, the death of Jesus means that he has taken the punishment we deserve upon himself. And so now God looks at us as though we have the same sinlessness as Jesus. This is unbelievable. You've got to realize this. Jesus, completely sinless. And he is what God sees when he looks at us, if you trust in Jesus. Uh, The Bible's got a technical word for this. It's called justification, which is also a legal term. And when we are justified before God, this is how I used to remember it, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justified, just as if I'd never sinned. So even though I know that I'm looked at by God just as if I'd never sinned, the reality is I know that I keep sinning. I know this, God knows this, and just ask my family, and they certainly know this. And so as we await the return of Jesus, we live as people who are sinless in God's sight and yet sinful in our behaviour. And if you really want to impress your friends, I'm going to give you some Latin. Here you go. There's a phrase from the Reformation. Remember 500 years ago? uh, There's a great phrase that went. Here it goes. Simul justus et peccata. There you go. You can impress your friends with that, which basically means simultaneously justified and a sinner. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I can show off, basically. But what it it tells us is there there are two very key things. At the same time, you are seen as being sinless in God's sight at the same time as continuing to sin. And both of them can be held together this side of heaven. Because when we go to heaven, then we will be seen as we are, no longer in sin. Finally, question seven. How can we evangelise to people without being too forceful? Well, I thought about this a bit. I actually reckon the bigger problem I see is that we're often not forceful enough. (laughs) 
um, I, I know that's probably my problem as I talk to people about Jesus because I, you know, I kind of I want to keep the friendship going and, and not to say anything that might remotely offend anybody. But the thing is, I know that Judgment Day is coming soon and I know that everyone who has not repented and believed in Jesus is going to hell. And because of that, I really need to try and let people know this as much as possible. Uh, you know, if it was some other warning, like don't go down that street because there's a flood and you will have your car trapped and swept away, if I knew that, I'd warn people. How much more when we know about the reality that confronts all people who go through life without turning to Christ? And so that has got to be at our forefront. But above all, whatever we do, we need to do it in love. This is really important. We've got to love the people we talk to. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here tonight and you're thinking, well, this is pretty full on. Well, it is full on. And we say it out of love because this is a, a big reality. And I'm going to talk a bit more about that as we come to the final talk tonight in our series on God's glorious judgment. But the, with all of this, we want everyone to know that we can be saved by knowing Jesus. And we want to do that in the most loving way possible.